0: Friends, This is Ellen Weatherford
1: and Christian Weatherford
0: and we are here with Just the Zoo of Us, an animal review podcast where we take your favorite species of animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity and, of course, aesthetics.
1: We are not zoological experts. We do a lot of research and try our best to make sure we're presenting information from trustworthy resources. But if we get it wrong, let us know.
0: Yeah, we will do our best to make it right.
1: I will travel back in time assassinate myself, and take my own place to give better information.
0: But then they wouldn't have anything to correct.
1: Time paradox.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Area 51 special. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, we're not really doing that. Because we're recording this on the day of the Area 51 raid, but this will come out next week. But we do have a huge, probably our biggest ever, update and that is that we have a ceiling fan in our office now. (laughs) I was like,
1: uh (laughs) uh-oh. What did I forget?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Christian put up a ceiling fan in our office, and that's the room that we record in, and it's making it a lot more pleasant to record in here.
1: It sure is. It's normally sweltering.
0: So hopefully that recording in pleasant conditions will just allow us to bring even better content. Agreed. So last week, Christian went first with a jaguar so this week it's my turn
1: what do you got for us this week honey
0: this week I am going to be talking about a beloved cultural icon the coqui. ah yeah the the scientific name is Eleutherodactylus coqui. I like that yes it's a beautiful name the species was requested by our friend Edwin Rivera. Thank you, Edwin. Edwin requested this saying that this is a species that is near and dear to his heart because the coqui is the cultural icon of Puerto Rico.
1: That's right. We learned a little bit about this in the JoCo cruise earlier this year when we went to San Juan.
0: We did. We got to stop by in San Juan for a little bit. Now, we didn't hear the coquis and we didn't really get any exposure while we were there. Still,
1: Saw oh, lots of references to it.
0: Yes, lots and lots. This is a very popular animal in Puerto Rico. Just before I launch into it, I'm getting my information from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Forest Service, the Animal Diversity Web, we love them, we're always up in their business, and this is interesting, the Journal of the Acoustic Society of America.
1: Okay, Yeah. interesting.
0: I'm really glad that we're talking about this animal because... Most of the animals that we talk about, I think we talk about their visuals a lot, which Mm -hmm. doesn't always translate super well to an audio medium. This animal is made to be talked about over an audio medium. Excellent. Yes, this is perfect. So just to introduce you to my new friend, the Koki, their adult size is only up to five and a half centimeters or a little over two inches. And that is like as big as they get. All right. So they're typically going to be around an inch long. It's a little dude. It's a small frog. I didn't mention that they're frogs. They're frogs. <laughs> they're tiny, tiny frogs. They are native to Puerto Rico, where they can be found pretty much throughout the entire island. Pretty much all over the place. Um, most notably, the famous rainforest in Puerto Rico, El Yunque National Forest.
1: Oh, yeah. Is that, was that the one near san juan it's
0: near san juan yeah it was close to where we were but not close enough for us to reasonably go there because we had to be back but um yeah el yunque rainforest now their taxonomic family is eleutherodactylae these are rain frogs that name comes from greek and it translates to free toad not (laughs) t-o-a-d (laughs) it's not a free toad you can't go to the store and ask for a free toad by free toad they mean that their feet are not webbed
1: oh okay
0: yep they don't have any webbing between their toes which basically just means that they're not necessarily adapted to be like aquatic their their feet aren't adapted to swimming this is more of a land-dwelling frog Now, this family of frogs is known for its practice of direct development. So what this means is that the babies emerge from the eggs, not as tadpoles, but as froglets. They develop through the tadpole phase inside the egg, and by the time they hatch from the egg, they have already grown legs.
1: I guess that makes sense if they're not in bodies of water usually.
0: Right, right. Now there are over seven hundred species of frogs in this family. Okay. And eighteen of them are different species of cookie. Huh. Yep. So the one that I picked is just the common cookie. This is the one that you're going to find all over the island. It is the one that there seems to be the most information about. So that's why I picked it. There are a few other different species, including some that are believed to be extinct. It's really interesting because they seem to have like just developed on the island of Puerto Rico and that's it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is just your little introduction to the cookie. So I'm going to get into my ratings for this animal. So if you're joining us for the first time, what we do is we rate our animals in three categories, the first of which is effectiveness. And we define effectiveness as how good is this animal at doing the things that it needs to do. So these are physical adaptations that let the animal do a good job. So I'm giving the cookie a 7 out of 10. Okay. For effectiveness. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's decent. So, first of all, they have pretty good camouflage. They're just kind of a standard brown color, but they have markings that are like brown adjacent. So, they could be tan or like light yellow or a darker brown. They just, they blend in with the wood of the trees that they're in or the leaves on the ground, stuff like that. They blend in very easily with foliage. So, they're pretty good at... Staying hidden, which is good because they are ambush predators. So they do like eat insects around them and stuff. They'll pretty much eat anything that can fit in their tiny, tiny little mouth. (laughs) But they're ambush predators, so they'll lay and wait until their prey is close enough for them to jump out at them and get. Their lack of a tadpole stage means that they don't actually need standing water. This is really good for living in a rainforest environment where there might not always be standing water available, like during the dry seasons or something. Hmm. They also do absorb moisture through their skin like other frogs do. So they're really well adapted for living where they live in the rainforest. They don't necessarily need standing water to get by because they don't have to necessarily drink water like through their mouth. They can absorb it through their skin.
1: Makes sense.
0: Yeah. So kind of the most defining characteristic of the Koki is their voice. For being only about an inch long, they have an extremely loud voice. Oh, boy. Yeah, the cry of the coquille can be up to 90 decibels, which is about as loud as a lawnmower. This is kind of what they're most known for. I actually put more information about this in the ingenuity section. Okay which I'm going into right now. Oh, well, it's time. here, here we are. <laughs> so for ingenuity, we define this as behavioral adaptations that an animal has that let it do clever things. So maybe it has a problem that it needs to solve on a daily basis, or maybe there's an obstacle in its way that it needs to kind of figure out. These are smart things that an animal does. I give the cookie an 8 out of 10. Really? Which is higher than I expected to give a frog. Sure. This is a clever frog. Oh, boy. Yes. So... The coqui gets their name from their iconic call that they make. So their name is actually onomatopoetic.
1: Like a Pokemon. Which
0: is, by the way, onomatopoetic is my favorite word in the English language. <laughs> it's so yes, it's exactly like a Pokemon. They say their name. <laughs> they do. And this is the only animal I can think of like this. <laughs> but they do say their name. So the the call, first of all, it's only used by males. females do not make the sound females will make like some small sounds but not very many so when you hear a cookie it is a male making i I
1: can guess what the purpose is then
0: yes (laughs) you can but hold on okay It, it gets more interesting than that so they produce this call during the evening and throughout the night to communicate with other cookies it's not necessarily like to i don't know ward off predators or anything so, what is distinct about the call of the Koki is that it is divided into two distinct parts, like how the name goes Koki. Mm-hmm. The first part of the call is a low pitched ko, and then the second part is a high pitched Ki. <laughs> so, their cry sounds like Koki. <laughs> it's so precious it's really cute so the first part is much much lower and the second part is much much higher sure there is a very particular reason for this yes so each part of their cry sounds the way it does because they're intended for different audiences male and female cookies have auditory neurons that are distributed differently from each other Hmm. their brains are literally wired differently Their inner ears are tuned differently, meaning that males and females cannot hear the same pitches. Females can hear much, much, much higher pitches than males can. Yes. So this is actually a really cool example of sexual dimorphism in the auditory system. Yeah, for sure. Where they're actually processing their environment differently based on male and females. Yes. This is wild. This is so cool. (laughs) What is even more interesting about that is that, so the co part of the cry is directed at other males to warn them like, hey, I'm here. I'm a male. You need to know where I am so that you know to not be in my zone, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. They're trying to like keep other males away from them. So that's what the co part of the sound is. And the key part of the sound is directed at females to let them know, hey, I'm over here. It's me, a male. Come Come uh, hang out with me. <laughs> yeah. Come get some, basically. <laughs> so in the absence of other males, they will skip the co and just do the key. Huh. And in the absence of females, they'll skip the key and just do the co. Interesting. So they can like kind of tell. They're like, okay, it doesn't seem like there's any females around here, so I don't necessarily need to broadcast to them. I'll just do the co part so i'm just talking to like hey fellas hey fellas <laughs> <laughs> and when they're done with that they're like all right now ladies <laughs> <laughs> it's like that song yes but so yeah so they're they're talking specifically to whatever sex of frog is closest to them and like they can tell who's nearby and they change their call based on who they're trying to talk to
1: i wonder if that's based on what they can see or what they've heard, like maybe they can hear other males.
0: Right, like they can hear if there's other males near them, right? Yeah. So if the, if they don't hear any other males nearby, they're like, okay, maybe I don't necessarily need to call out to the males. Okay. Yeah. So I thought that was really fascinating. I put this in ingenuity because I figured like, even though this isn't necessarily like a conscious decision that the frog is making, this just shows that they have adapted to The neurological differences between males and females and have this habitual behavior that's like tailored to the whole auditory processing system of the different frogs.
1: Yeah, that's crazy.
0: Yes, that is so cool. That's such high level stuff. So the next thing I want to talk about for their ingenuity is the... Cookies like to hang out in different parts of the trees based on what kind of time it is. Hmm. So first of all, like the older ones, the older adult ones, you'll find them up higher in the trees than the juveniles who like to stay kind of closer to the ground. The cookie likes to hang out at the tops of the trees at night when it's nice and cool and it's kind of humid and there's a lot of kind of like bugs flying around up in the tops of the trees, so they like to hang out up there. But then... When the sun starts to come out, things start to dry up. It starts to get a little hotter. They will be like, hmm, I need to kind of get lower to the ground because it's a little too hot up here. But if they were to just kind of hop back down the tree, like try to climb back down the tree, they would be really, really vulnerable to tarantulas, lizards, predators like that, that are coming out around that time of morning. So they just jump out of the tree oh and fall to the ground <laughs> they're, they're speed running getting I, back down to the ground can I,
1: can I back it up a real just real quick yeah what does do puerto what? rico have tarantulas yes i did not know that yeah huh
0: big old spitters
1: <laughs> they got
0: them yeah which will eat the frogs because the frogs are very small okay but so they will just jump out of the tree and fall <laughs> to the ground and
1: (laughs) all that stuff nah
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so they just kind of daredevil jump right out of the tree and fall to the ground this has led to people describing el yunke forest as raining frogs oh that's very good Mm -hmm. so (laughs) what's funny is that you hear that and you think okay they probably just mean either there's a lot of frogs there Or maybe it rains really, really heavily, like how you and I would say, like, it's raining cats and dogs or something. Yeah. Which I say we would say that, but I don't think I've ever said that in my life. I don't feel like it's as common as a phrase. Yeah. But so how you and I might say it's raining cats and dogs. Maybe this is like the Puerto Rican version, like it's raining frogs. I guess. But no, it literally rains frogs. The frogs (laughs) literally fall out of the sky.
1: I wonder if there's a particular time when it happens.
0: Yeah, it's like early in the morning.
1: But like at the, at the minute, like, could you set your clock to
0: <laughs> I really doubt it. <laughs> I don't think it's like, oh, well, it's 816 and then just every single like hundreds and hundreds of frogs all at once. <laughs> like when
1: you go outside at a particular time, you have to remember to bring an umbrella.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think it's like that. But that would be really funny if it was. I would really like that. So yeah, I thought that was pretty clever of them to figure out, like, hmm, I can just use gravity to get down (laughs) back to where I need to go without getting gobbled up.
1: I'm guessing it's such that they don't weigh enough to hurt themselves from that fall.
0: Right. Yeah, they're just too small. They don't really take fall damage. Man. (laughs)
1: Lucky.
0: (laughs) I mean, like, you don't worry about something like a spider falling. It's like, he's going to be fine. He's too little. He's just a little frog. (laughs) He's fine. So, yeah, they jump out of trees. I thought it was pretty smart of them to do that, to keep away from predators. I agree. The last thing I wanted to talk about for their ingenuity, this is not a behavior that is specific to this species of frog, but it's still something that I found kind of endearing. Since they do hatch into froglets rather than tadpoles, the coquille lays their eggs on plants rather than in water. So this means that the eggs and the froglets are a little bit more vulnerable to different threats, like just environmental threats, but also a little bit more vulnerable to being found by predators or messed with in some way. So male cookies will guard the eggs. And oh. yeah, so the female like just lays the eggs and leaves, but the male actually hangs around the eggs and guards them to make sure that nobody comes along and gobbles them up.
1: Oh, that's a nice little trade off there.
0: Yeah, they'll even stick around like for a few days after the froglets hatch to like make sure they kind of make it. Yeah, so they're actually good dads. (laughs) That wasn't something I was expecting to find about a frog. You know, when I feel like when I think about frog parenting, I imagine just like they lay their eggs and leave, which is what a lot of water dwelling frogs will do. Like when they lay their eggs in the water, they'll just put them there and and peace out. But but the coquille will kind of hang around and make sure that their babies are okay. I thought that was really sweet. Yeah, how cute. So that wraps up my 8 out of 10 for Ingenuity. This is a surprisingly clever little frog. <laughs> I like it. I was kind of surprised to find all that stuff out, but...
1: Yeah, imagine.
0: ...very pleased by it. This brings us to my final category for the koki This is the Aesthetics. For Aesthetics, I gave it a 7 out of 10 as well. This is a pretty basic frog. It's really just a tiny little brown dude... I kind of gave it some points because it is pretty cute. Mm -hmm. They have these huge round eyes. They actually have a kind of a pointy nose. Their nose is a little bit V-shaped. Their markings have some variability, like some of them have yellow stripes down their back. Some of them don't. They can kind of look a little bit different from one to the other. They don't all look the same. They don't all have the same markings. Okay. I mean, they're pretty cute. They're nothing necessarily spectacular, but they have a pretty adorable little face as far as frogs go. It's a decently cute frog. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap up the koki by talking about some miscellaneous information. Their conservation status is of least concern. Good. In fact, coquilles have been found as invasive species in Florida, California, and most importantly, Hawaii. Well. They are kind of wrecking shop in Hawaii. They apparently are a huge problem. So what happens is they come in undetected, either as eggs or as just tiny adults on imported plants. So they bring in like bromeliads or other types of plants that are not native to that area and the coquille is just so little, like you don't see it. You, mm-hmm. you could just miss the entire frog or it has like eggs on the plant or something and then you bring that in and then they get everywhere and then they lay eggs and it just...
1: That's the perfect environment for them too.
0: It's very, yeah, it's very similar to what they're used to. So mm-hmm. it's really easy for them to reproduce.
1: But probably fewer predators.
0: No predators. (laughs) Nothing in Hawaii will eat them. So they're just completely unchecked. This has happened in Florida a few times in the past where coqui will sort of establish populations in South Florida. But Florida has the advantage of periodic freezes during the winter. Sometimes Uh. we'll have freezes and those will usually kill off any coqui in that area. They can't really survive a freeze, but they can't really get a foothold in there. Like every once in a while, there'll be a little flare up or like a bunch of them will show up. But they're not self-sustaining. You won't see a population of them lasting for a long time. However, in Hawaii, like I said, they have no natural predators to Mm -hmm. keep their populations in check. And in fact, in Hawaii, there have been times when their population density was up to double or even triple what it was in Puerto Rico. So this is like thousands and thousands and thousands of coqui in very small spaces.
1: So what is the impact? Is it eating important bugs or
0: yes so they're eating a lot of bugs they're eating a lot of native insects but also this is i hadn't thought about this but the excrement from the frogs changes the nutritional balance in the soil yeah so this is something that is okay for plants that are not native to hawaii but the plants that are native to hawaii are used to a very very different balance of nutrients in their soil the plants that are native to hawaii are used to that sort of volcanic soil right where Mm -hmm. it's 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 very, very different from Puerto Rican soil. So when the coqui establish a big population, the poop Mm -hmm. (laughs) that they're putting into the soil can really kind of change the ecosystem there. I see. And they're also, you know, eating a lot of insects, and they're competing with other predators in that area. So it's just not good. (laughs) Sure. And also another, not necessarily an ecological side effect, but an economical side effect is that they're very loud. (laughs) They're extremely (laughs) loud due to the density that they can establish in Hawaii. The sound produced by their calls can be completely deafening. You cannot hear anything over how loud they are. If they really get a foothold in an area, they can be so incredibly loud that you, you can't even hear yourself think.
1: That's awful. You can
0: hear them inside like inside buildings you can hear them because of how many there are and how loud they are the the hawaii invasive species council describes them as loud incessant and annoying that's that's not to uh devalue the importance of dealing with an invasive species that has really skyrocketed
1: honestly i feel like the sound is the the biggest problem and everything else is just secondary
0: (laughs) (laughs) who knows maybe i don't know i don't know i'm not on that council
1: (laughs) I think Hawaii in general is very, very careful about avoiding invasive species.
0: Oh, gosh. It's like you can't take anything to Hawaii. Yeah. Like you cannot take a plant. You cannot take a fruit. You cannot take an animal. Like mm-hmm. you can't take your pet to Hawaii. It, they really have it on lock. Yeah. So what's funny is that as negatively as they feel about the sound of the koki because of how many there are there, that's in stark contrast to how Puerto Ricans feel about the sound of the coqui, right? Sure. So in Puerto Rico, their densities are much lower. They keep it to a reasonable volume. It's still loud, but it's very melodic. It sounds beautiful. They they have that sort of melody to their call. Mm-hmm. And it's it does sound like music in the rainforest. It sounds really beautiful. They have really inspired a lot of art. They've inspired songs and poems and they've just really been a muse for for artists from Puerto Rico and they're they're strongly associated with Puerto Rican identity. That's awesome. Yeah, so I I've been really charmed by this frog mm-hmm. and I'm a big fan.
1: I think there's also a lot of music with influences from the Koki where the singer will imitate that sound. Oh yeah. I heard a little bit of that while we were in San Juan.
0: Yeah, it's I can definitely see why they are so Charming because I was reading an article from like the Puerto Rican tourism website that basically described their association as like just like Puerto Rico, it's a small island, just like the coqui, we're small but we have a big voice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, I was like, you know what, that makes sense. That makes sense. So yeah, this is a great animal. I love the cookie. And you know what? I didn't know anything about it before like doing all this research. So That's fun. Yeah. Good animal. Thank you, Edwin.
1: Yes, thanks, Edwin.
0: Before we move on to Christian's Animal, just a real quick uh, shout out to our Patreon. We have a Patreon to help us grow. So if you want to help us out, if you want to support us and help us get bigger and better and also get access to some really cool stuff like a feed of the show with no ads and a patron only discord and all sorts of other really cool stuff. Come check us out at patreon.com slash just the zoo of us for this week's episode. I want to thank our patrons, Brianna Feinberg and Christina Sanders. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. All right, Christian, what do you have for us this week?
1: For this week, I have the American bombardier beetle.
0: Okay.
1: Scientific name, Brachinus fumans. Hope that's how that's pronounced.
0: Sure, you're good.
1: This animal was requested by Jungle Jim Queen, as well as Sarah Beth Bradley.
0: Thanks, y'all. Good taste in bugs.
1: <laughs> so a lot of people have heard of the bombardier beetle. That is actually a, you can call it a grouping of several different species. I chose the American bombardier beetle just because of being local to us, I suppose. Although I I don't think I've ever personally seen one of these.
0: Definitely not.
1: And I'm pulling my information from also Animal Diversity Web. can be found at animaldiversity.org. And also MIT News, a particular article with which I will tell later else giving away content a
0: grand reveal <laughs> no spoilers here
1: but it can be found at news.mit.edu so a little quick talk about this beetle their adult size are about a half inch long or one and a quarter centimeters long teeny yeah not big
0: it's like the claw of a chicken
1: the, the fingernail
0: Mm-hmm. But bigger than that okay
1: <laughs> yeah you're trying to pull in them chickens <laughs> so these guys can be found as a name might suggest in north america in temperate zone woodlands and grasslands. They belong to the taxonomic family Carabidae, also known as ground beetles. Uh, as far as notable evolutionary relatives go, there's one called Panagius Crux Major. I mentioned this one because it's interesting to look at. It's a golden black, and its markings look like it has a crucifix on it. Whoa. Yes. Ooh,
0: <laughs> spooky. <laughs>
1: and I also have a story Towards the end of my segment, Oof. that involves this particular crucifix beetle.
0: Okay. And
1: Charles Darwin.
0: Oh. So that's a little <laughs> teaser for yes. you. Stick around. Yep.
1: But kind of going back onto the family thing, this family includes 40,000 species.
0: No, it does not. Sure that's does. so many. I
1: mean, now we're in the bug lands.
0: That's true. Most animals are bugs. <laughs> Most things are bugs. Am I bug? Yes. Aww. We're all bugs.
1: So getting right into it, effectiveness. This is where this particular species shines, in my opinion. I'm giving it an 8 out of 10.
0: All right, that's pretty good.
1: And that's because of what bombardier beetles are known for. To put it simply, bombardier beetles, they have a defense mechanism to where when they are threatened or startled, they will spray a hot toxin from their the rear of their abdomen. Okay, Let's talk about how it works a little bit.
0: Yes, please. So
1: in the rear of the abdomen of these beetles, they have two small glands. One produces hydrogen peroxide while the other makes hydroquinone. And then those two mix in a different part of the abdomen that is called the explosion chamber.
0: No it's not. <laughs> it
1: for sure is.
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs> this so, is a zoid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so these two those two chemicals mix. And within that chamber is already two enzymes, catalase and peroxidase, and it's added into there to speed up the chemical reaction that takes place. So when these chemicals all come together, they produce a lot of heat. It reaches about the boiling point, so the temperature of this mixture, this cocktail of sorts... (laughs) Reaches 100 degrees Celsius or 212 degrees Fahrenheit.
0: There it is. Okay.
1: (laughs) It's heated up. It's creating a ton of pressure. And then the beetle releases it as a steamy stream. This makes an audible pop when it happens. Something like that, yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it does this as a defense mechanism. So one, it's very hot. And two, it's an irritant to most animals.
0: Oh, so it's both hot and spicy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, this is a
0: spicy gusher. <laughs>
1: I don't suggest it, though. <laughs> uh, and this reaction that's happening inside it happens in pulses.
0: Oh, so it's not just like a stream? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's not a one and
1: done thing. Okay. So, so like just
0: in case the first one wasn't enough.
1: Well, it does a controlled pulse it gets to the point where the pressure builds up to where the glands aren't able to put any more of the first two chemicals into the chamber until it, it's released. It's a lot like a uh, an ignition chamber in a gasoline engine, actually.
0: It sounds like it doesn't really have a lot of control over this.
1: It does, yes. So it's controlling these pulses and for how long it wants. But, oh, okay. But its control really comes into play with aim. So it has about 270 degrees of aim in any direction. Oh, wow. It so it can effectively aim it wherever it wants.
0: Does it ever <laughs> accidentally like fire at itself? or?
1: <laughs> so I've, I've seen it. I've seen videos of it doing this. And I've seen it get its own leg or something. Because usually in the videos, the way they prompt the response is they'll use tweezers or something to kind of like grab its back leg.
0: Oh, that's rude.
1: <laughs> and then like, ah, it's... <laughs> <laughs> and it'll usually get its own leg. It doesn't seem to do any damage. Something interesting there is that the anatomy of the beetles is a such a way that it doesn't harm its own internal organs with that said explosion chamber. So, and by the way, this is where the MIT article comes into play. And that article was titled, How Some Beetles Produce a Scalding Defensive Spray. There it is. So MIT was interested in it because of the potential applications in defense. I'll like say.
0: military defense.
1: Yeah, but also uh, engineering in general.
0: Oh, okay. Right. I mean, yeah, they've basically got like a biological combustion chamber. Right.
1: Because the the insides of the beetle are such that, you know, some pieces are made to not expand um, under pressure, whereas some are meant to expand, but not permanently. And it's designed to to retract back. Sure. Just basic things going on inside it. Because, you know, you would wonder, like, how does it how does it not blow itself up? (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of different insects do something like this, but what makes the bombardier beetle different is the reaction that makes it hot. The chemical itself, a lot of different insects use this kind of chemical, but the bombardier beetle can shoot it. Oh,
0: (laughs) a little extra sting to it. Yeah,
1: yeah. They eat other bugs, a lot of which would be considered pests. So that's a plus. I'll take it. Point off, though, uh, they cannot fly. They do have wings, though, so they are considered vestigial
0: oh man (laughs) you got the wings you can't fly join the penguin club i guess man (laughs) so just like
1: just like a lot of ground beetles they they have wings that are covered by like a cap over it sure sure
0: makes me think of like a scarab
1: yeah just like that those caps are usually the prettiest part of beetles um decorative (laughs) uh moving on ingenuity i gave it a five out of ten
0: it's probably the best they could have hoped for. <laughs>
1: I mean, it knows to use the chemical attack when it needs to. Sure. Right?
0: It probably takes a little bit of know-how to like know how to aim, your, get your trajectory right, where you, like <laughs> you hit what you're going for, but not yourself.
1: I guess, yeah.
0: I guess it requires a fair amount of expertise. You're essentially a gunner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Although there are situations where aim does not matter. For example, I saw a video of a toad eating one. Not this particular species, but a bombardier beetle in general. And then, of course, it does what it does best inside the toad, and the toad throws it back up.
0: Oh, really? Did the beetle survive?
1: Looked like it, yeah.
0: Wow. (laughs) Man. Sure. Since,
1: Since toads and frogs eat their things whole, usually, right?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess they wouldn't really be trying to worry too much about, like, chewing it up and killing it first or anything. Right. So I guess it would have that little escape opportunity. Yep. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I like to give bonus points for, like, good good evasive uh, maneuvers. Yeah,
1: yeah. But again, I I consider that to be more of a
0: ineffectiveness yeah. thing. Yeah.
1: And then the final category, aesthetics, 6 out of 10.
0: It's not bad.
1: It's not the most interesting to look at as far as beetles go. It's it's not one of the pretty iridescent ones. Oh
0: man, I love those. Yeah.
1: So it's it's black and red, like a red orange mostly. The the black part is its abdomen and the rest of it like its its head and its legs are reddish.
0: It's a Sith beetle.
1: Oh, what?
0: sith beetle i
1: don't know what, uh, sith as in star wars yes oh, Okay. because yes. it's black and red <laughs> yes excellent reference thanks wife unit <laughs> <laughs> all right so that was my six out of ten for aesthetics uh conservation status there's no special listing
0: sure
1: now my fun little side story the meat and potatoes let's get to <laughs>
0: it i've been on pins and needles
1: so this comes from the university of cambridge specifically their darwin correspondence project This comes from a letter that Darwin wrote to a Leonard Jennings on October 17th, 1846.
0: This is a throwback. Yes. All right.
1: And it talks about the beetle that was related that I mentioned earlier, the Panagius Crux Major. Okay. One that has a crucifix on its back.
0: Cool. Cool, 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 cool,
1: (laughs) And also, before I go into it, just a reminder that the family is Carabidae. He will refer to it as carabi. So I'm choosing a particular part of this letter. It's a pretty long letter, but this one I found interesting.
0: An excerpt.
1: Yes. And it goes as such. I must tell you what happened to me on the banks of the cam in my early entomological days. Under a piece of bark, I found two karabi, I forget which and caught one in each hand. When lo and behold, I saw a sacred Pinagius crux major. I could not bear to give up either of my Karabi. And to lose Panagius was out of the question, so that in despair, I gently seized one of the Karabi between my teeth. When to my unspeakable disgust and pain, the little inconsiderate beast (laughs) squirted his acid down my throat, and I lost both Karabi and Panagius.
0: (laughs) Get (laughs) wrecked! Oh my gosh, the the audacity of this creature. <laughs>
1: the little inconsiderate beast.
0: <laughs> you can this is a letter that is what 150 years old. Yep. <laughs> and you can just feel the seething like frustration the little inconsiderate beast. <laughs> you could feel how mad he was. That is a timeless rage. <laughs> uh,
1: so I, I really enjoyed that.
0: Gosh, I love that. You keep getting all these deep cuts. Because <laughs> when uh, what's his face was trash talking the manatee, yeah, you remember that? I do. That was a that. good one too. Dang.
1: So I think there there might be a, I guess something to be taken away from this story, something about greed or maybe the. You know, bird in the hand worth two in the bush or something. (laughs) A
0: beetle in the teeth is
1: (laughs) worth nothing,
0: (laughs) is worth none in your hands. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) so yeah. Oh my gosh, that was good. Oh, that's a good one. Thank you. Okay, so I guess the implication here is that, like, he put a a bombardier beetle. It
1: wasn't a bombardier beetle. So remember, I said a lot of these kind of beetles will expel this kind of irritant. I see. see. So I'm thinking this is the kind that. Was not a Bombardier Beetle, so it wasn't like super super hot, but it was still an irritant.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Gosh, that's good. So
1: that's all I have for the American Bombardier Beetle.
0: Good stuff. Thank you, my love. Yes. And
1: thank you again. From Jungle Gym Queen and Sarah Beth Bradley.
0: Yes. I have some audience responses that I'd like to share with you all.
1: What you got for us?
0: So this comes from our buddy, the the Jungle Gym Queen, who also on Facebook goes as the Nagging Naturalist. Oh, Same okay. Same person. Yep. Twitter, Jungle Gym Queen, Facebook, Nagging Naturalist, who has a lot of really, really cool nature and conservation-based like content. So very, very good stuff. Uh, check them out on Facebook. So the Nagging Naturalist says, in response to our peacock mantis shrimp segment in episode 19 have to contest christian's peacock mantis shrimp score or at least a feature he used towards their score because for all of those color cones you remember how we talked about the color cones in the eyes of the peacock mantis shrimp Peacock mantis shrimp can't actually process color the way we do. Being able to see more light waves than us doesn't necessarily mean they are good at interpreting what they're seeing. They're poor at discriminating between colors. However, when looking at what their photoreceptors focus on, it reveals that they have six receptors dedicated to processing on the UV spectrum as well as special crystalline cones that help filter UV-specific wavelengths entering through their eyes. So being able to see UV light is thought to contribute to their communication since they use polarized light to talk. Deep Look PBS did a good job covering the topic a few years ago, and then uh, goes on to say, counterpoint to my own, I have to give them props for having six pupils and hexnocular vision, as opposed to our vision, which is binocular, because two pupils there's this hexnocular because they have six pupils so i actually oh, okay, okay. i actually did look up this deep look pbs video on their vision and it was really interesting because it translated the light that they're seeing into light that we would be able to see. And it shows how they signal their location to each other using UV light that is visible to them, but not to us or anything else. Well,
1: how do they produce the UV light then?
0: It's not that they produce the light. It's that they have, I don't know if it's scales, but like their fins reflect oh. that light that they can see that nobody else can see.
1: Okay. I guess they're just reflecting space like the UV from the sun.
0: Yep, yep, they're just reflecting that light that nobody else would be able to pick up. This reminded me a little bit of when we were talking about the praying mantis having compound eyes Mm -hmm. and, you know, other bugs that have compound eyes, but the praying mantis having compound eyes doesn't necessarily mean that they see better than us because, yes, they have very, very, very many eyes, but they don't see particularly well. So this is an example of quantity not necessarily meaning quality i see yeah so uh. oh do you know? do you see great spectacular thank you all right that's all i have Well, thank you so much to you, the listener, for joining us this week, as we hope you will every week forever for the rest of our lives (laughs) as we continue making the show.
1: And even then, after we upload our consciousness to a... uh, A hive mind. I'm going to say a sentient automaton...
0: <laughs> okay, so we're going to have procedurally generated AI concocted episodes. I really want to hear that. I like I want to I want to see someone do that thing where they take like transcripts of our show, which are available on just com, by the way, and like feed it into like an AI program and then get a deep fake like <laughs> <laughs> have like a, an AI generated.
1: I made this AI read a thousand hours of just a zoo of us transcripts. <laughs> and this is what it came up with. It's just five pages of Fart Boat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which has been retired and then brought back by now, by the way. And that's some deep lore from our Facebook group. Yay. <laughs> but so anyway, sorry for all of that that you just heard but <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> thank you to everybody who's been listening, especially especially thank you to people who have been telling your friends about us and reviewing us and rating us on your podcatchers. It means a lot to us and it makes us really happy and it makes us want to keep making this show. So thank you for doing that. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Just just search the title of the show, you'll get there. Yeah. Also, please come hang out with us in our really cool and awesome Facebook group that's called Just the Zoo of Us Official Friend Squad. It's like the best group ever, and you guys are really great, and you make it an awesome group. We've Good been, stuff. We've been having a great time. If you have an animal species you want to hear us review, you can submit those to us. Uh, you can hit us up on social media and get those to us, or if you'd rather, you can email them to us at ellen at Us.com. A transcript of this episode and all the other episodes can be found at www.justthezooofus.com. And last note, I want to thank Louis Zong for the use of his song Adventuring off of his album B-Sides.
1: Always a pleasure to listen to.
0: Yep, we love it. In fact, you're about to hear it right now. Here it comes. Oh. Bye.
1: (laughs) Bye y'all.